Please be seated. My voice sounds a little different. Um, I was tired of being a tenor. I thought I tried baritone. You'll have to tell me later if you like it or not. I, um, I love the Bible stories uh, because they're, they're stories about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. They're normal, ordinary um, events that are interrupted by uh, abnormal events. And I think we can actually step into the story if we really want to. I, I don't, you know, maybe if you don't have a good imagination, it would be troublesome. But if you have any kind of imagination, you could easily step in these stories. Yeah, the time period was different and things were a little different, but the people were ordinary people. And I think that if we step into the story, sometimes we can get a better understanding of what was going on. And I think by entering the story, we get a better understanding of ourselves and of our God uh, and how he uh, interacts with us. So I'm hoping that you'll come back with me to Jerusalem uh, to the evening of Resurrection Day. Um, but first, I actually want to step back a couple days because I think it's important to get the frame of mind that um, the disciples were in. Because after three plus years of being together every day under the tutelage of the greatest prophet of all time, the future restorer and king of Israel, the Messiah, the son of God, they suddenly find themselves without this leader who was betrayed by one of their own and they didn't even see it coming, even though Jesus actually did tell them. Just a few nights ago, they had a meal together. And about 12 to 15 hours later, he was a bloody mess, hanging naked, and then by evening, dead in a tomb. By Sunday morning, I would have been a mess, wondering who I could trust. What if there was another informant in this band of brothers? How could things have changed so quickly? We were on top of the world. Now we're probably hunted and maybe next on death row. And the guilt, we all deserted him. The fear, one of us betrayed him. Thinking back over the past three years, I can find lots of fault with these guys what about James and John trying to get special favors from Jesus? What about Peter's big mouth? Maybe he said something he shouldn't have. And now what? Where do we go? Where do, what do we do? Do we even have a future? You know, we can get pretty haughty sometimes and insist that we would have done better. But I doubt it. Because they were just a bunch of regular folks like you and I. After the past three days, they were confused, lost, suspicious, angry, frustrated, doubtful, frightened, paranoid, and probably a lot of other emotions. We would have felt the same. They were just a bunch of guys. Then Sunday comes along, and things get really wild. And though today's gospel reading focused just on the guys, there weren't just guys hanging around. The women go to the tomb to find Jesus gone. Mary tells Peter and John, who apparently weren't with the rest of the guys, and they run to the tomb, and 
they see also that he's not there. Now Mary apparently had gone back with them because after Peter and John left, she runs into the gardener, who of course is actually Jesus. And there was some traffic of people coming and going. And although the movement of each person isn't recorded, when you look at the events of all four Gospels, you get the sense that there were a lot of people wandering, coming together, moving apart. No one's sure where they were going or what they should be doing, which would have been pretty normal given the circumstances. The Bible often focuses on one or two people or one group, just like any other book or movie. But things are going on all around and people move in and out and around the main scene. Other women also ran to the, to the tomb, and they saw Jesus. They all went to tell the apostles. That's in Matthew 26. All 11 of whom were together at that point, but no one believed them. Later, Cleopas and another person, possibly his wife, meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus. That's in Mark 16. And they go back to tell the eleven. And in the meantime, Peter, at some point, left the others and met Jesus. And you can find that in Luke 24, 34. So again, people weren't just sitting around in a circle waiting for something to happen. So for those keeping score, Jesus has appeared to several women in the morning, Cleopas and one other non-apostle, and Peter in the afternoon. And now we get to Sunday evening. Thomas has left for reasons unknown. Perhaps he was emotionally drained from all the sadness to disbelief to joy to disbelief to sadness. It's been a roller coaster ride. Or maybe he was mad. Why did these others see him? But he didn't. He also had had a, a good relationship with Jesus. Granted, Thomas had deserted Jesus like all the rest, but at least he hadn't denied him like Peter. Why did Jesus visit, visit Peter and not him? Hadn't he been willing to die with Jesus during the whole Lazarus affair? It was Thomas, if you remember, who spoke when the others were trying to dissuade Jesus from going back, when Lazarus had died, going back to Judea. It was Thomas who said, let's go with him, we'll die with him. He didn't want to be separated from Jesus. And then, why Cleopas? Who was he anyway? We were, Thomas may have felt left out. These were all just ordinary men and women. We remember them as holy, as saints, with halos and all the religious pictures. Powerful and faithful men and women. But not yet. They were just you and me. Emotional, competitive, whiny. Their world had become chaotic. And they were scared. It says that in verse 19, which we, uh, Jan just read, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, understood. And the first thing he said was, peace be with you. That's what they needed most. And to make sure they understood who he was, he showed them his hands and his side. Because remember, the last time they saw him, he was a bloody mess. And now he was in his glorified body. The difference would have been dramatic. The same with the guys on the road to Emmaus. When did they recognize him? When he sat at table, when they sat across from him, when they held up the bread. Because when he held up the bread, they would have seen his hands. 
And because, as Brian has reminded us often, God does not despise our humanness, Jesus repeats, peace be with you. These guys needed a lot of reassurance. After all, they've gone through, peace is what they needed. And peace is what we need today, isn't it? In this chaotic world, wouldn't a little peace be nice? How can we be a faithful, non-anxious presence without peace? And that's what they became amid persecution, much like our persecuted brothers and sisters in half the world in places like Sri Lanka. They need peace and so that they can remain faithful, non-anxious presidents, even in that situation. So back to that night. In Mark's account of that night, he writes that Jesus rebuked them for their hard hearts, for their lack of faith, because they had failed to believe those witnesses who had seen him after he had risen. That's in chapter 16, verse 14. In Luke's account, he says in chapter 24, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Verse 37. And Jesus said, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Verse 38. And Luke goes on in verse 41. They still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. So now Thomas rejoins the ten and finds out that he again missed Jesus. He utters his infamous and I think impetuous resolve not to believe unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And he is forever known as the doubter, which is totally unfair because they all doubted. He just wanted what they got. He wanted to be treated equally. We probably would have a similar response if we were honest about it because we all doubt. We would all like a little more evidence. We don't like being left out. They had been through a whole lot in the past 72 hours. Their emotions must still have been raw. They must have still wondered about each other. Who's in charge of this motley crew now? Who can we trust? Who can we believe? Can we even believe our own eyes? And Thomas now is apparently the only one left out. Why? They may be wondering, maybe he's another Judas. And he must be wondering if everyone is just making all this up, playing some kind of cruel joke on him. Why was he being rejected? Thomas was the one who seemed to want separation from Jesus, the least of all of them. As I mentioned, he was willing to die with Jesus in Judea rather than be separated from him. And in John 14, while Jesus was talking about leaving to go and prepare a place for them and them knowing the way to go, it was Thomas who interrupted and said, well, wait a minute, I don't know where you're going. Where, where are you going? Thomas wanted to make sure that he knew how to follow Jesus because he didn't want to lose him. And it was Thomas who Jesus uh, made that second, probably the second most known statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what happened? Why was Thomas the only one left out? And why, and this is the most fascinating part to me, why did Jesus wait a week before he came back? Eight days is, is the same as a week, and you have to look up uh, the Jewish way of counting days. And this was an anomaly. 
it, it, it's in the final uh, phase of Jesus' ministry, unlike the first three plus years, he wasn't with them all day. He was actually with them very little. And he made what was called appearances. And they were rarely longer than a meal. So his methods of preparing the disciples for their ministry had changed. And that's what he was doing. We just read in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. Jesus had completed his work. He had finished his assignment and the disciples needed to take over his earthly ministry. It was time for this crew to start solving problems on their own. The first one being how to deal with each other without him refereeing. And perhaps Thomas had become too dependent on Jesus' physical appearance. And this is tricky, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying that we shouldn't be dependent on Jesus. Far from it. But perhaps during that week, the disciples didn't spend much time together because of all the confusion and paranoia. And Jesus waited until all 11 were in the room together before appearing because that's what he wanted to reinforce. They were to be the first church, and that required them being together. So often in the church, when a charismatic leader leaves, people just also leave, and the church become, starts to crumble. There was no greater leader than Jesus, and his weaning himself away from them may have been to teach them to be the church, as ordinary men and women supporting each other. Their relationships had been mainly through Jesus, Things were going to change. He was going to send his Holy Spirit to set up residence inside each of them. So they needed to get used to seeing each other, looking for Christ inside each other. A week later, Jesus again starts out by saying, peace be with you. They're still unsettled. Jesus came but then left and no one knew where he had been and when he was coming back. And here, I don't think Jesus is really rebuking Thomas for being unbelieving. He's graciously offering Thomas the opportunity to do what he requested because he wants to make an important point. We insist that seeing is believing, but in truth, believing is seeing. Thomas says, without apparently touching Jesus, my Lord and my God. And this is the only place where Jesus is called my God. He's called the Son of God, but Thomas sees and knows that Jesus is God. Then he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's he talking about? You and me, of course. Blessed are we who believe without seeing him face to face. Someday we will. And then the author takes a break from the story and states the purpose of his writing the book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God's salvific work was complete. Now the news needed to be spread. People needed to know that salvation was available. People needed to know that reconciliation was possible. And it began with each other. These ordinary men and women needed to begin to trust each other as they eventually trusted Barnabas in his vouching for Saul no longer being an enemy. 
That's in Acts 9.27. They needed to work together, as they later did at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. They needed to be able to forgive each other, as Philemon had to forgive Onesimus. To hold each other accountable, as Paul held Peter accountable in Galatians 2.11.12. And to love each other, as 1 John so beautifully puts, and to accept each other's differences. Ordinary people working through daily problems. It's important not to put these guys on a pedestal. Sometimes when we do that, we actually dismiss them because they're not like us, but they are. Their halos came much later. In verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And how was he sent? To draw people, to know them and to be known. He lived with them ate with them, slept with them. There was an intimacy. Jesus said, God knows your hearts in Luke 16:15. So this becomes our calling to know each other's hearts, to spend time with each other, to know and be known. And then in verse 22, Jesus breathed on them. Now, I'm not proposing anything funky like us walking around breathing on each other. But here again, there is a sense of closeness. If we're sent like Jesus, we're sent to get close to each other, uncomfortably close for most New Englanders. We did some of that yesterday at Cross Current. We got close to each other, and it was beautiful. And you can still come, by the way, because this is an open one. So for those of you who have problems with commitment, you can actually just come to one. And if you have problems with commitment, you really need to come, because you really need healing. <laughs> So anyway, sorry. <laughs> then verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is well. It, it, it is withheld. Much can be said about this, but I only say this. Jesus did not say that if we don't forgive, he won't forgive. All he said is that if forgiveness is given, it's given. If it's withheld, it's withheld. But what happens if I withhold something? Who still has it? If I withhold something, in this case forgiveness, I still have it. And if I withhold onto unforgiveness, it'll kill me, not the person unforgiven. And again, forgiveness is all about relationship again, because that's what Jesus was about. It's interesting during the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to focus on God meant focusing on the law a law outside themselves causing them to act in certain ways, demonstrate specific behaviors, and seek forgiveness from God alone. Against you and you alone have I sinned, Psalm 51.4, David said. The Ten Commandments were always there, and they ultimately always pointed to the two greatest commandments that Jesus mentioned in Mark 12, 30, 31. Love the Lord your God with all your mind and with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the loving God is the first four commandments, loving others is the last six commandments. But with all the atoning that people had to be constantly involved in, there wasn't much time for each other. Everything was focused on fulfilling the law. The law pointed to sin, but didn't provide a permanent solution. Then came grace, a.k.a. Jesus, who fulfilled the law once for all. 
And he sends the Holy Spirit to live in me and in you. Christ in us. Christ in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. Christ in me loves you. Christ in you loves me. That's what Jesus does. That's what he came for. We are to look at each other now, not as Jew or Greek or male or female, slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised, or even Scythian or barbarian. I've put together Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11 now. C.S. Lewis famously said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. That's from the weight of glory. The danger, of course, and there is always a danger in anything we humans get a hold of because we are so good at mutating things into our own image, the danger is in worshiping man. But God never did that. So Christ in me is not going to worship you. It is now Christ in us, not a law that causes us to act in certain ways, to act in love. John says it clearly in his first letter. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Chapter 4, verse 12. It is now Christ in us that causes us to demonstrate specific behaviors, loving behaviors. As again, John says in his first letter, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's chapter 3, verse 17, 18. And when we sin, we reconcile with our brother or sister against whom we've sinned. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 5, 23, 24. Again, I am not saying that we don't need to seek forgiveness from God and that we haven't sinned against God. All I'm saying is that the new covenant places emphasis on loving and living with each other as well as a body, in community. And perhaps that is what is going on during those first weeks after the resurrection. The small remnant of ordinary pre-halo group of men and women were being weaned from relying just on sight to living by faith. This group of misfits and below average dregs of society will change the world. The question, of course, is what about us? I look around the room and I don't see any halos. At least some of us are ordinary, maybe even misfits, and I have spent some time as a drag. We sound like a perfect match for this world-changing opening, job opening. When Jesus returned to his throne, the angel said to the disciples, why do you stand looking up at heaven? That's Acts 1.11. Training was almost over. It was time for them to get busy. Ten days later, this small group had grown to 120. They were all praying together. The Holy Spirit fell, and then 3,000 more were added. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Acts 2.44. There was a difference between pre-Jesus and post-Jesus community. Even though BC law required taking care of each other, we really couldn't do it. Because on our own, we tend to make ourselves gods. It really takes the Holy Spirit activating me, animating me, filling me with love for me to focus on you instead of me. Perhaps you're like that too. Those two nights we read about in, in the gospel today, the one on Resurrection Sunday and the one eight days later, were the beginning of our refocusing. First, peace be with you. Stop striving so hard. Allow Christ in you to take over. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Just like in Genesis 2-7, in the creation of the first Adam, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now the second Adam breathed new life into his creation, formed over the past three years, breathes new life into us. We are to be this new life to each other and to the world. Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit here is symbolic. He himself said in John 14, 26, that the Father would send the helper, the Holy Spirit. So here he's making the connection between himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit to come. So there for anybody who says there's no Trinity. So breathe in God's peace. Be a faithful, non-anxious presence to each other. Then look. Look at each other's. See each other's hands and feet and sides. See the scars, the wounds. Even though you can't see Jesus in the flesh, we can see each other. And the Christ in you can bolster my faith so that we all believe. And in believing that we may have life in his name. So, you know, I go for two minutes. But in this two minutes, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to spend two minutes in peace. You know, you'll have 1,438 more minutes today to be busy as you want. But just be peaceful for two minutes. I'll keep the time. Prepare to be a non-anxious presence. <laughs> 